We're back in the cave. It's good times. Back in the cave. So, uh, hi. Uh, this will be, uh, this will be episode two of season four. Woo. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's fun, right? I love the season thing. It feels so stupid, but I, it, it's. Yeah, are we, this is still, we don't have a one episode season. This is all clumping together with that. Well, yeah, I couldn't decide how to do it. So I don't want season four to be a one episode season. So I'm just counting our, our, our fun crossover with Red Menace. Okay. Uh, as episode one of season four, the kickoff to season four, it was okay. Mao. We will come back to Mao. That will not be the last we hear of Mao. Um, you know what? That's good because it's on contradiction. And the preface for Wretched of the Earth yes. is is a Frenchman, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre. Don't do, don't, don't you. Dar- <laughs> don't. We talked for five minutes about ways to pronounce it and you used the wrong one. God Why? damn it! I tried. I tried. Sartre. 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 I'm just gonna go with Sartre. Sartre. Go, go with Sartre. Sartre. It's fine. I'll say okay. Sartre. We'll Jean Paul Sartre. Yes, Sartre. Uh, but yeah, he's he's fun. But yeah, no, this is gonna be. We are we are officially kicking it off. If this is your first time here, it, I don't know why, but if this is your first time here, uh, th- we are. My name's Nathan. Hi. My name's David. Hello. Uh, we are going to go through another. This will be our fourth full book uh, mm-hmm. in in the Marx Madness Ouvre. Yes. Um, and and this is the first time that we are getting away from uh one people in the USSR or Marx. Yeah. Um, so and it'll be the first time that we jump into. Um, Let's be real, someone that me and David both have no experience with. Yeah, I mean, normally what we've kind of done is is I'm uh, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, well-read um, compared to the average person on, on Marxist uh, theory. Um, definitely but, compared to me. Definitely compared to Nathan. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, not, again, we talked about a little bit in the On Contradiction episode. I don't exactly have a college education in philosophy. I'm a little out of that loop where Nathan has an advantage there. But I've I've read a lot of Marx and Lenin and Stalin and, and you know, things like that. But I don't really know, like, Fanon. And um, so this is a little new venture for me. This is where yes. I don't get to be the dude that's read this before and is reviewing <laughs> it with a friend and dragging him along. But I could get drugged through the mud no, here, too. But this is the best part. This is yeah. this is where I think it's it's finally hit what we wanted this to be, which is this is a reading. This is a reading group. This is yeah. this is a way for, for two people to better understand theory. And hopefully the rest of you are along for the ride. If you want to be reading the book, obviously we are doing Wretched of the Earth by France Fanon. Um, if you are just using this as a, I have a really busy life and I have an hour in the car to listen to something. Great. This is better than listening to something else uh, than, than, than this. Yeah. The the vision I've had from the beginning and the thing, I mean, obviously with vision I've had, we did this kind of recording it on accident while me and Nathan (laughs) read it together. And then voila, we had a podcast, but the idea I've always felt that this should be is hopefully because there's a lot of, of parties out there that actually have reading groups and education groups and, 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 and people that are are much more active than us and, and can do much more robust reading. But uh, sometimes they don't have like, you know, the out of the moment context or they're focused on what their party's doing or they try to focus on the literature which is good and uh, so hopefully what we can be is we can be complimentary to that yep. um, you know maybe related to some stuff today or give better context to the book or just give you a better understanding where you come out of the group and go home and review it again so you've read it you've discussed it in the group and you've heard it if you've just read it and then this goes with it or if this is essentially your cliff notes for it whatever it is as long as we can better make this work accessible whatever we can do for the 
accessibility of Marxist theory, the better, because the better educated people are, the better we can go forward and we can apply that to practice. We can apply yes. that to activism, uh, organize, and not just organizing. I don't want to put organizing on a pedestal because some people can't organize. They just go and they do what the organizers tell them to yes. do. But showing up and yeah. knowing what you're doing, and especially if you are organizing or or educating, you know, there's got to be propagandists and agitators. If you think about what uh, Lenin talked about and what is to be done, yes. uh, which is, is not one we got deep into, but that's no. where he spells out what a vanguard party is. And if you want a great detail of that one, the Red Menace did our, our collaborators last time to have a great episode on what is to be done. Mm-hmm. And so, again, you know, even along with that, read, you know, read, definitely yes. read it. Uh, but, you know, what Lenin spells out what what is to be done, you know, a party is going to be organizers, it's going to be, re- you know, revolutionary uh, fighters, and it's going to be propagandists, and it's going to be educators, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever of those we can help you with, we hope this does that. And now, for the first time, we're not standing here as, as like, you know, a person that's read it before and a person that's being drugged through. We're walking through it with you. This is yeah. the first time, baby. We're going raw. You know, let's, let's go. Let's, and that, let's try to trip over our own feet together. And that being said, we have, uh, I'm, I'm in, I, I am eternally grateful for everyone that actually listens to this and is taking something from this because we have the people that come out of the woodwork on on Twitter and on our on iTunes reviews and, and say that this is helpful. Like just just know that you get me through the day because that's that's it makes yeah, us feel great to hear. it makes you feel less uh, powerless in this when you're at least contributing something. And if this is the thing we can contribute, let's let's do it. Um, but that being said, we're also getting into I think uh, everything we've read up to this point has been very much theory of why marxism is right why mm-hmm. what are the foundations of this ideology what what why is capitalism wrong and how do we go forward and how do we establish some sort of communism for for a, a specific group of people almost in this case mm-hmm. almost everything we'd read had been geared toward the russian revolution and the russian situation um what we just did on contradiction and then on practice um, between Red Menace and, uh, and us the last couple of weeks uh, was was in the Chinese context. Yeah. But Fanon really speaks, I almost feel like, more so to the moment we are in right now and one of the more critical things we face, which is what does this mean for decolonization? Mm-hmm. What does this mean for people that are all that have been colonized and need to get out of it? Because that, if you look at the, tr- the history of Marxism and where it has done, in my, at least in my opinion at this point, the most good has been... In its ability to decolonize and its ability to give people an ideology that lets them decolonize effectively. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, like Marxism started with dialectical materialism. With dialectical materialism, that was, you know, revolutionary. Now the workers could liberate themselves and knew what they were up against and they knew how to bring about a new epoch that was liberatory for everyone. And then Leninism, and that's where it becomes Marxism, Leninism took us in and said, hey, we're in a stage of monopolist capitalism and so it's regurgitating as imperialism. And honestly, in, in Capitalism came from colonialism, and imperialism and colonialism are a cycle of the same thing. So now we're incorporating imperialism into it and how to combat that. And that's where you get, like, the national question, sovereignty of of, uh, colonized nations, things like that, all fed out of Marxism and Leninism. That's where you take the football and go. And then, of course, he successfully... Uh, led the first socialist revolution. So we've got like material lessons learned there from Lenin and Stalin and even Mao. Yes. Right. Um, so now we're focused on the decolonization part, like from a global, not, not that Mao and that, of course, Stalin, who is Georgian, yeah. isn't coming from a global South perspective, but this is a very explicit, like the most deeply colonized nations are, you know, Africa and South America. And the, the, so this is a very, very 
explicit you know, decolonization, because you think about it, and even today, we've got to understand, you know, we've talked about before, like, people understand anti-imperialism. Yes. But there's people that, that know it as a word and will, will misuse it, and so they'll scream anti-imperialism while shouting talking points for imperialism. Yes. And then, like, the people they're speaking for will, will cover everything in Union Jacks and U.S. flags, and they just won't get it because Pe- they don't understand the definition of imperialism. People think imperialism stopped around the time of the robber barons and that we're done with that now and we've moved on. And- right. Or it's any bigger country that does anything that has anything to do with any smaller country no matter what. Yes. You know, Not recognizing so, that Amer- that the United States is still a colonized nation, right. specifically for the for indigenous groups and for for a whole host of and Fanon gets into that the get in, specifically into American colonization and in, in the 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 black mentality in America and how that that is a colonized group within an empire and how the heck do you reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, we have a big, messy contradiction in here, right? And really two contradictions. You know, I mean, in Europe, it's easy enough to say, well, get the hell out of every every other nation. But the biggest, grubbiest fingers in the world are America, yeah. right? Well, America, you've got the white supremacy from Europe. You've got the settler colony. It's the main NATO nation. It's the main colonizer. It's the main source of imperialism. And it's the main antagonist to the global south, which we'll focus on heavily here. And that's why you can't just have nationalism for the United States. It's not a colonized nation. It's a colonizing nation. Yes. Uh, but at the same time, it it is a colonized nation, just not for the settlers. Exactly. It's and, and, and within that colonization, you have a contradiction there because you have the indigenous groups and you have the black uh, uh, community that was, you know, basically imported on slavery yes. and the heavily colonized. And now that's that's kind of together is the most deeply colonized. And then there's a second layer of people of color, you know, Asian, Latinx, things like that, um, and immigrants that, that are being colonized. And you can see explicitly in concentration camps now. Yes. And so you have these layers of contradiction to do with the colonization. And so it's very, very important that we untangle decolonization. And that's what we're doing here. Yes. And Fanon also is a is an interesting departure in, in a couple ways. He is obviously, just because of the time jump we have, um, and, and Fanon, for, for reference, was born in 1925, died in 1961. So 1961, we're going to get very, very recent. We're going to get into modern to things that are to, that are much more familiar than the Russian Revolution, which can at times feel a little bit antiquated just because of its time frame that it went in under. Um, this is going to hit on a lot of things that you mm-hmm. learned in history or that you intentionally did not get taught in history classes, um, and and how those you know how those rea- how those actually were happening in the colonized world at the time. Um, he's also someone again that's got to learn. From every one of the guys we've talked about up till now, he is someone that uh, that was able that was taking synthesizing Marx and Lenin and Stalin and Engels and Mao and all of these guys, and then adding a new layer on top of that. And mm-hmm. and the other interesting thing that he was that none of these other uh, uh, theorists were was he was a, a classically trained psychiatrist. He was a, a psychologist, and that adds a really really interesting layer. And we're going to get to that in a there will be a, a supplemental specifically about. Fanon psychology, because the book that we're not covering, he's, he's essentially known for three works, two main ones. Um, the, the one we're covering now, Wretched of the Earth, is considered kind of his his magnum opus in there. But from a psychology standpoint, his major work was uh, Black Skins, White Masks. And that really covers the psychology of, of, of a colonized people and how that 
changes them and how how rules do not apply the same way to colonized people as they do to to colonizers. And it, it's it's really really interesting. And I wanted to find a way to incorporate it. And thankfully, I, I happen to be pseudo related to a, uh, a trained psychologist <laughs> who I'm going to uh, drag kicking and screaming into into the cave in order to go over this with me. Mm-hmm. So that'll be that'll be another fun part. But that being said, as we do with every one of these when we start. Um, it's context time. Oh, before we go to context before time. Before context time. I totally forgot. We have a correction. Oh, corrections time. Corrections time. Usually we do this at the beginning. We're a little late today because we're really excited. But uh, yes, we uh, we managed to screw up with the with with Brett and Allison. We, yes. we made a boo-boo. Yes. So uh, obviously we'll have to let Brett and Allison know this too so they can issue whatever kind of correction. It was an off comment right at the end of an episode, but corrections are corrections. Uh, I still believe the point of the comment that I hope what we're doing here <laughs> is a jumping off for organization of parties, uh, but I had been led to believe that the formation of the Black Panthers Party uh, was tied to the Watts Rebellion. Apparently, the rapid growth of the Black Panthers Party is closely tied to the Watts Rebellion, but it was formed a year before the Watts Rebellion, so it's hard to say that was the jumping little hard, point Yeah, that causation timeline would be a little weird. Uh, so the causation's a little more up in the air, but according to Bobby Seale and this is 1965, Malcolm X assassinated, 66, Black Panthers form, 67, Watts Rebellion. According to Bobby Seals, um, the Malcolm X assassination was was the big jumping point for was that. Was the catalyst. And that, yeah. makes, and that honestly makes a hell of a lot of sense. I mean, if yeah. that, that is... And a, we have, I mean, we have half the founders of the Black Panther Party still alive to ask that to. Exactly. It's, it's, it's easy. It was an easy one for us to debunk. But, yeah, uh, so my dumbass, I don't know how <laughs> I got misled or how he spoke up so poorly when Bobby Seals is alive to ask that from, and he has said it before. We called Bobby. Bobby said we were wrong. <laughs> that was not... God damn it. <laughs> that would be so cool to have just a straight... Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Can we get a hotline to Bobby Seals? Uh, so... <laughs> So Rain, we but, got one that you didn't have to get for us. You yeah, know, yeah, we got that one. We, we got that one. Got know, that one on our own. So, yeah. So. But so, so to begin, as we begin all of these, um, we need to do some content. We need to understand who Fanon was, why, when he was writing, and what, uh, what sort of major world events were uh, were influenced by and influencing the work that we're going to read. Mm-hmm. So ne- biography time. Fanon was, like I said, born July twentieth, nineteen twenty-five, as Ibrahim Franz Fanon uh, in uh, Martinique. Which was a French colony at the time. Um, I still believe I don't. I don't. I don't have the the history on Martinique to be specific. So if anyone wants to jump in on that one for me, you're more than welcome. But uh, <laughs> yep, not me. Um, he was a physician, a psychiatrist, uh, and and for our purposes, he was also a revolutionary and a an amazingly good theorist for colonized people. Um, he was a member of the Algerian National Liberation Front, which we're going to get to very much in depth here in the back half of this episode. Um, but his works have have been greatly attributed to inspiring liberation movements all over the world, most specifically uh, Palestine, Sri Lanka, and South Africa. Um, all directly tie their their revolutions to Fanon's thinking and to Fanon's you know theories, mm-hmm. um, which is huge. Um, uh, the quote by philosopher Lewis S. Gordon remarked that Fanon's contributions to the history uh, history of ideas are manifold. He is influential not only because of the originality of his thought, but also because of the astuteness of his criticisms. He developed a profound social existential analysis of anti-black racism, which led him to identify conditions of skewed rationality and the reason in contemporary discourses on the human being. He basically was able to call out a lot of the the mental gymnastics that we do, he was able to point to where it roots itself and and why that is important for colonized people and how that enables them to to liberate themselves. Um, so early life again, he was born in the Caribbean island of Martinique. 
Um, it is now a French singular territorial collectivity, which really doesn't sound great. I, I don't know. That doesn't sound like a and, good And thing. again, when we're talking about the Caribbean, we talked about um, um, Trinidad and uh, uh, the whole archipelago that goes up from South America towards the Caribbean Sea. Motonique is... Uh, Part of that, yeah, that that it's little farther farther north in that, yeah. Um, his father was uh, Felix Casimir Fanon. He was a descendant of African slaves and indentured in uh, indentured Indians, and he worked as a customs agent. His mother Eleanor, I'm Medellisi Medellisi. I'm I'm bad. She was Afro <laughs> She was of Afro Martinique uh, and white Alastian descent, and worked as a shopkeeper. Uh, he was the third of four sons in his family. Two of them died young. Um, his family was socioeconomically middle class. Um, which is something we see a lot um, in 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 Marxist theorists is they they you know you have to essentially you get a certain level of understanding from being in in that class that allows you to kind of get a broader picture. Um, that meant they could afford to send him to the basically nicest schools in Martinique, where he was able to become educated. Um, he one of his teachers, Amir Kasser, was uh, his idol for a long time. He helped him get into the Free French Forces um, during forty three. When he left, so so he left Martinique in 1943 to join the Free French Forces uh, because there was this little thing called World War II going on. Uh, <laughs> he wanted to, he jumped in on that. Yeah. Um, so after France fell to the Nazis in 1940, uh, the VC French naval troops blockaded Martinique because why wouldn't you? Uh, so when they were forced to remain on the island, French sailors took over the government from Martinique's people. Like yeah, he, just nice nice favor. It was good. It yeah. was oh, we lost our country. We're taking yours. We need a new base. Hi. That's right. We're the French. Uh, and they established a collaborationist Vichy regime. In the face of economic distress and isolation under the blockade, they instituted a pretty uh, oppressive regime. And Fanon described them as taking off their masks and behaving like authentic racists. Basically, when push came to shove, oh, we are the Martini, we're, we're a group, we're a team. But once that wasn't able to be, yeah, no, the, mm. the, the mask came off. We saw what they actually were, and that was blatant yeah. racism. People know what what taking off the mask, you know. I mean, is I hope now. I hope plenty of people have seen. I almost get a feel that there's a certain group of white supremacists in the United States that they their fealty is to the systems that create the white supremacy, and the white supremacy is just a consequence that they're fine with. And then there's a group where their fealty is to the white supremacy, and the the systems that, that enable it are just shit that gets in their way. Yeah. And that, you know, and, and we think of those as two different parties. Yeah. Um, so one is clearly just the mask coming off. Yeah. Um, and so while this was happening, there was uh, the Martinican people uh, reported a l- number of abuses by the French Navy soldiers <laughs> that were stationed there. Um, and this had a heavy influence on Fanon at the time. It, it really reinforced his feelings of alienation um, and disgusted this co- the, the wait, I thought we were the same people. You keep saying that we're we're a co- we're, we're the same where you're the mother country. But as soon as it came down, you don't see us as equals. You don't see us as the same. Talk about freedom and equality and all, all these enlightenment ideals. Mm-hmm. And they're not really freedom and equality for everyone. And, exactly. And Fanon was very good about spelling that out in a way that. If you study things like the Haitian Revolution yes. and the Bolivarian Revolution, not the the current, I mean, obviously the current one too, yes, but all the, of them. the original, the, o, the OG Bolivarian <laughs> Revolution, maybe. Uh, the Mexican Revolution, all these Enlightenment revolutions where it's like, oh, yeah, freedom, equality. Oh, uh, not, not really you. Not you. No. Not you. You know. <laughs> so, and, and he began to see the whole system of, of 
colonization as a racist enterprise, an inherently racist enterprise. And and I think that is pretty obvious on the outset now, but, I mean, living in it, he had a very clear idea. Um, so he fled the island as a dissident, which was a term used for any Frenchman joining the Gaullist forces, um, and he traveled to British Dominica to join the Free French Forces. He enlisted in the French army, joined a convoy, and got to Casablanca. Um, transferred to another base in Algeria, and then left Algeria from Iran and served in France in, in a couple battles during World War II. Um, he really, really saw, again, to highlight the racism, his, his regiment seemed to be bleached of all non-white soldiers. Whenever there were photojournalists in town, Fanon's regiment made up of, of majority, uh, you know, African-American, Afro-Caribbean soldiers, didn't show up in any of the pictures. It was just the white soldiers in the group that were that were pictured when the journalists came to town and when everyone came to report. Um, and later they were transferred to uh, to Normandy to await repatriation to come back to France after the invasion. Um, during the war, Fanon was exposed to severe European racism towards black people. For example, white women liberated by black soldiers often preferred to dance with fascist Italian prisoners rather than fraternize with their black liberators. Uh, mm. uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, it, it shouldn't be shocking. It shouldn't be it shocking. Just, it hurts to hear. Doesn't it, though? In 45, Fanon returned to Martinique. Uh, he only lasted a short time there. He worked for a parliamentary campaign for his friend, uh, Casser, who we had mentioned, um, who would remain a major influence. Uh, Casser ran on the communist ticket as a parliamentary delegate from Martinique to the National Assembly of the Fourth Republic, which was, the Fourth Republic was the French Republic as after World War II, um, including their holdings, the the uh, Indo French Indochina, and more commonly Vietnam, Cambodia, um, that whole region, um, and then Algeria, which was considered a part of France. Algeria holds a very special place in French colonization, and we'll get to that as we get more into the the Algerian War of Independence. But mm -hmm. the the Fourth Republic was essentially it's France. We have these other places elsewhere. You can elect your delegates to go to the main assembly. We've seen it before, it's similar to any kind of colonial rule. Um, so Fanon went on, and uh, he stayed long enough in Martinique to get his uh, bachelor's, and then he went to France to study medicine and psychiatry. He was educated in Lyon, where he had studied literature, drama, philosophy, um, and during this period, he wrote three plays, with two of which survive, but we're not oh. going to talk about those. Um, <laughs> after qualifying as a psychiatrist in 1951, Fanon did his residency in saint albert le Mans under the radical Catalan philosophist Francois Toscal. He invigorated Fanon's thinking by emphasizing the role of culture in psychopathology, which, again, is going to be very rooted in how Fanon, uh, Fanon's theory going forward. After his residency, he practiced uh, near Mont-Saint-Michel for another year, and then from 1953 on, he, he was in Algeria. Um, he was the chef de servat at Bilda Jeanvel Psychiatric Hospital in Algeria, and he worked there until being deported in 1957. Huh. In France, while completing his residency, Fanon wrote and published his first book, Black Skin, White Mass. This was in 1952. Um, and this, again, we're going to do a deep dive on in, a, in another episode, but just to touch on it, it was an analysis of the negative psychological effects of colonial subjugation upon black people. Originally, the manuscript was his doctoral dissertation, which he submitted at Lyon. It was entitled Essay on the Disalienation of the Black, which was a response to the racism that Fanon received while studying psychiatry in Lyon. He was basically talking about his experience as a black man studying psychiatry in a colony or as a colonized person. Um, for his Doctor of Philosophy degree, he submitted another dissertation with a much narrower scope. But the main dissertation was what became Black Skin, White Masks. Once Fanon submitted the manuscript uh, to Seal, Jensen, who was the publisher of the uh, pro-Algerian independence network at the time, invited him for an editor-author meeting, 
And uh, this meeting did not go great. Oh. It didn't go great. Um, <laughs> Fanon, uh, obvious. Sounds ominous. Not as ominous as you'd think, but uh, it's uh, we're warning. I don't know how I'm going to handle this next sentence, so just we'll, editing may may happen. Um, so Jensen loved the manuscript. He was he was highly highly praising it. He, he really thought it was important. Um, and he but he felt Fanon was a little on edge and a little what he called oversensitive, oh, which God. I imagine had something to do with Fanon being in front of a French person critiquing his work. Sure. Um, but the, the, the exchange that, that ended the meeting was Fanon abruptly interrupted him when Jensen was praising the work, saying, not bad for a insert bad not word that I can use here, is yeah. it? Um, we'll just say slur. Well, we're going to have to run into that. In we're going to run into it, and I don't know how we're, we're going to do it. We're, we're, we'll, we'll do this. I don't want to okay. gloss over history and pretend it didn't happen. No, but I am not. I'm not saying it's that It's not word. our place to say that not word. Not saying that so, word. Sorry, guys. We will, we will say... Big N, little, Big N, little N for the Spanish. The one, yeah. The one that sounds like the, the Spanish. The one that sounds like black in Spanish, yes. Uh, and then we'll just say slur for anything else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jensen was insulted and became angry at this uh, interjection and dismissed Fanon from his office. Uh, later, Jensen said that apparently uh, his response to Fanon earned him Fanon's respect. Apparently, getting pissed off and kicking him out of the office made Fanon respect him. Not 100% sure what that's all about, but uh, I don't know. It works. It was, it's what he thought. <laughs> um, and after that, their working relationship became a lot easier. And, and Fanon agreed to Jensen's suggested title of Black Skin, White Masks, which is what the work became published under. Um, what the hell the title was before? Uh, it was his. It was his dissertation, which was oh, the was... essay on the disalienation of. Okay, the black. that was just the, the yeah, name yeah. Of that was his. Okay. Yeah, that that was his. Jensen. Apparently, was the PR guy that was here to punch it up a little bit. <laughs> okay, and that's what we got. Um. So then, Fanon. At this time, Fanon left France for Algeria, where he had been stationed for a little bit during the war. Um. He secured appointment as the psychiatrist in the Bill de Joinville Psychiatric Hospital, and he radicalized his method of treatments, particularly beginning with sociotherapy to connect with his patients' cultural backgrounds. He thought he could not treat people, uh, for, uh psychopathology without understanding where they came from, without understanding mm. their culture and what that, what part that played. Um. He also Sounds trained like nurses a and damn good therapist. Uh. Yeah. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. <laughs> Um, he also trained nurses and interns at the time. Um, following the outbreak of the Algerian Revolution, which took place roughly November 1954 is when it officially kicked off. It had been brewing a little bit before then. Uh, Fanon joined the, uh, the FLN, the Front de Liberation Nationale, um, which we will call FLN from now on because I am already just getting tired of having pronounced French words that I know I'm not pronouncing <laughs> right. And after then, he made contact with Dr. Pierre Cholin in Bilda. Lida, Lida, whatever, in 1955. Working in a French hospital in Algeria, Fanon became responsible for treating the psychological distress of French soldiers and officers who carried out torture in order to suppress anti-colonial resistance. This was a huge part of the uh, the Algerian Revolution. There was, and people, oh, it was on both sides. There was a huge amount of psychological warfare and straight-up torture to try and break the will of the Algerian people during the revolution. And um, and we we are not strangers to seeing this um, as as a strategy against decolonial fights. I mean, no. you look at the torture, you know, in, in Vietnam, no. especially not just Vietnam, but the Central American wars yes. um, during the Reagan administration, yes. you know, everything under Operation Condor. Yep. Um, oh, hey, 
other fun current event. Guys, turned out Reagan was racist. Who knew? Oh my God, shock, yeah. Shocking, breaking news, guys. Ronald Reagan may have been a bit of a racist. The guy the guy that had Lee Atwater <laughs> telling you what a dog whistle is by flinging Big N, is what we're calling yeah. it, all around to explicitly describe it casually. Oh uh, and the guy who, who came after... <laughs> Just let gay people die in the AIDS ac- epidemic. The guy who did Operation Condor. The guy who who did everything from uh, strap strapping young buck dog whistle oh, to, to welfare uh, queen, welfare queen to going to st- doing the states' rights dog whistle in uh, where is it uh, Alabama that. Where did he kick off his campaign? Oh, uh, was it Alabama? Tuscal- was it Tuscaloosa? It wasn't Tuscaloosa. Uh, we don't matter. Somewhere in the yeah. south, he still he got he got some big Confederate flags around. Yeah, really, I, but... it, so shock. He's shocking. Shock. Shocking. His biographer had no idea. <laughs> so dumb. I just so dumb. Um, yeah. So we, yeah. So again, there was a huge amount of torture going on, and part of Fanon's job there in Algeria was he was treating the the French soldiers who were justifiably scarred by this because again, it's you, you see it in. Uh, there is no good soldiering. There is no good military intervention there. But yeah, there are people that will probably get caught and realize. If you're a human being and you take part in that and you realize what you've done, that's going to fuck you psychologically. Yeah, forever. in spite of uh, I can't even remember what Democrat it was. I think it was that that uh, one of these big four girls, like Taliab or, or whatever oh, it is, uh, was like, uh, think about the the people running the the camps for um, ICE right now. You know, like I don't feel sorry for the psychological trauma of those. No. Like fuck them. You no. know, but at some point that. Yeah, I mean, there is psychological be... trauma being taken place. He is a psychologist. His job is to treat it at the time. Yeah, I mean, the only both sides is if you don't quite dehumanize the subjects enough yeah. that for every 20 scores of psychological trauma the subject gets, one or two is going to go to the, the torturer, too, you know. So at the time, Fanon then became uh, as his, again, because he was employed by the hospital. The hospital was run by the French at the time. Mm-hmm. He was, so he was doing that. He also became responsible for treating Algerian torture victims. So he saw the both sides of the both oh, sides. Yeah. And guess which, which... guess which side he decided to empathize with after mm. uh, hearing both sides of this argument. Uh, huh. Yeah. Weird. Fanon realized that at this point that he could no longer continue to support French efforts, so he resigned his position at the hospital in 1956. After discontinuing his work at the hospital, Fanon was able to devote more time to aiding Algeria in its fight for independence. Uh, in The Wretched of the Earth in 1961, uh, published shortly before Fanon's death, this was like as he, he knew he was dying as he was writing this. He was mm. he had bounced to uh, the USSR to get treatment for, he had been diagnosed with leukemia. Um, this was his kind of, his last thing, the the... the consolidation of everything he had learned and everything he felt up to this point as to what what the colonized struggle was and how to fight it. Um, and in, he defends the right of a colonized people to use violence to gain independence. That's his big... If you wanted to one-sentence Fanon's contribution, it is the concept of legitimizing a colonized people's right to violently take back what to take back their livelihood to take back their their independence. Yeah. Um that is again overly simplified and we're going to get into it in a second but yeah. In addition, he delineated the process and forces leading to national independence or neocolonialism during the decolonization movement that engulfed much of the world after World War II. Again, post World War II and the UN's a garbage place, but you use it as your your Base point. There sure. was something like uh, like 95 or something like that nations in the UN pre-World War II 
post-World War II, there were like 117. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's an explosion in, in new nations that, that, that became decolonized and became you know, able to self-determine at that time. And they started forming a, a kind of a majority block in the UN, and that terrified the shit out of everybody else in the UN. Yeah, and let's, let's be very clear on that, too. When we talk about, like, the UN is shit, obviously it's shit, but this is like when you talk about... The the Democrats versus the Republicans. Like, they're both shit. Who cares? Yeah, exactly. Right? There's nothing. Right. NATO is worse. They're the Republicans. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And yes, yes. UN will have people that will say, you know, I mean, UN will have people go out there that think they're doing the right thing. And they'll say, oh, no, this is all bullshit. Like, UN will have people testify, like, the sanctions are killing 40,000 people a year in Venezuela. Stop the sanctions. You know, or or the UN will have, like, the OPCW go down and say, like, no, there was, you know, no, no gas used in Duma. No. But then the U.N. will also lie about, like, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and they'll withhold the OPCW investigations in, in Duma, and they'll have some random person go on a nine-person tour, and eight of the people will go, yeah, this this guy, thing this guy made up is bullshit, but the ninth one will say, oh, there's concentration camps in Zhejiang uh, for, you know, I and I... I think it's actually, I think I've been pronounced it wrong with Uyghur. I think it's actually pronounced Wigger, but I don't think people can use U-Y-C-U-Y-G-H-R and know that that's a pronunciation. So just for readability, I'm going to keep calling him Uyghur Muslim. But yeah, I mean, UN will do shit like that too, you know? Yeah. So it's it's bad. It's bad. Um, so in defense of the use of violence by colonized people, Fanon argued that human beings who are not considered as such by the colonizer shall not be bound by principles that apply to humanity in their attitudes towards the colonizer. His book was censored by the French government. Surprise! Huh. But again, that that part is very critical, and that makes a lot of, and that's that's a huge component of this. If if the colonizer does not view or treat you as a human on the same level as them, you are therefore not bound to play by the rules that they say are are moral and right and justified because you're not being applied. The rules are not being applied to you the same way. You have to use whatever means they are going to to respond to yeah. in order to gain your independence and to gain your, your freedom. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? It, 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 this is life and death, so I hate to simplify it to a sport, but let's imagine you're playing a sport and there's, there's a set of rules where, you know, you can't foul anyone and the other team is fouling the crap out of you and, and not getting called for it. You can't just win by saying I played the right way you know because yeah. if you lose you die there's no moral victories in co- no decolonization more... right. this doesn't work that way right so you gotta you gotta bend the rules right back yes little little by any means necessary coming out here yeah um Fanon made extensive trips across Algeria, mainly in the Kabyle region, to study the cultural and psychological life of Algerians. He wanted to know what these people were and what their mm. what their life was like. Um, his lost study of the Marabout of C. Slamin is an example. These trips were also a means for clandestine activities, notably his visits to the ski resort of Shra, which had an FLN base. By the summer of 1956, he wrote his letter of resignation to the resident minister and made a clean break with his French assimilationist upbringing and education. Essentially, at that point, he he said, "I am not French. I have no association with the French. I I do not I do not recognize myself as being of the French people." Um, he was expelled from Algeria in, in Algeria in January of 1957, um, and the hospital that he was running at the time was dismantled. Of course, why not? 
Um, Fanon left France and traveled secretly to Tunis. He was part of the editorial collective at the time that wrote, and, and he wrote with them until the end of his life. He served as ambassador to Ghana for the provisional Algerian government, the GPRA, which will come back up uh, here towards the end. Um, and he attended conferences all across the country, uh, giving speeches. A lot of his shorter writings are, are collected works of these speeches, sort of like a lot of what you get with Mao's. Mm-hmm. Mao's collected works are a lot of his speeches to the, the, the party and all of that kind of stuff. This is a lot of what he had at the end of his life. Um, he returned to Tunis um, after an exhausting trip across the Sahara. Um, he got diagnosed with leukemia at the time, went to the Soviet Union to seek treatment, um, had some remission, and that's when he was able to, basically when he realized, oh, sh- shit, I'm at the end of my, I have to, I have to write this down. You know, he wrote, that's when he wrote The Wretched of the Earth. Um, he, uh, interestingly enough, a lot of his writing, almost all of his writing, uh, he didn't write. He, uh, he dictated it. He dictated a lot of it to his wife, and she wrote it for him. Mm-hmm. So there is some, that, that also, there is some, I don't want to say controversy, but there's some nuance there that that his writing was not always exactly what he wrote, but what was dictated. But it really doesn't make a difference for us. Um, he made one final visit to Sartre in Rome uh, in 1961. Um, him and Sartre were huge, huge friends, obviously, as qualified by the fact that Sartre wrote the preface to Wretched of the Earth. Oh, yeah. Um and it's a damn good preface. If there is a pre- uh, in the world of prefaces, this one kicks a whole bunch of ass and get yeah, ready for if next you're, week. If you're gonna have a a black person's magnum opus about decolonization, have a preface written by a white guy from a colonial state and have it be thirty goddamn pages long. It better be good to excuse those dynamics. And it, and it is. It was that good. As someone that going through college and all of my studies disliked Sartre passionately, this was Sartre's rehabilitation tour for Nathan. Um, it, it really, it really was striking the way he spoke of the passionate way he spoke about decolonization and the need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where it gets kind of weird. In 1961, the CIA arranged a trip to the U.S. for further leukemia treatment at the National Institute of Health. Um, I only assume in an effort to up one up the Soviets because he got his original treatment in the USSR. So let's 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 try and do it again. Yeah. Um, also, probably to try and get as much information out of him as humanly possible. Um, during his life in the United States, he was handled by a CIA agent named Oliver Island. Just weird. Fanon died in Bethesda, Maryland, in, which just feels like a travesty to me, in December 1961, under the name Ibrahim Fanon, which was a Libyan nom de guerre that he assumed when he entered hospital in Rome after being wounded in Morocco. Um, he was buried in Algeria after lying in state in Tunisia, and his body was later moved to the Martyrs' Graveyard in eastern Algeria. He was survived by his wife and has um, some sons that are still, uh, some relatives that are still working that run his uh, uh, foundation. Um, but that is the end of our, our brief biography of Fanon. We're going to get into a little bit more of his works later. Again, Black Skin, White Mask is going to have its own section. I'm not ignoring it. I'm just saving it for its own thing because I think it deserves it. Yes. Um, it's also heavily drenched in, uh, drenched in psychology, which is not me or David's forte. So we're going <laughs> to need to get someone in here that that is their forte before we can handle it. Um, but moving on, the, the other work that he did have was something called a dying colonialism. Um, it was his like last work that he wrote. It was a uh, incisive and illuminating account of how during the Algerian Revolution, the people of Algeria changed centuries-old cultural patterns and embraced certain ancient cultural practices that were derided by the colonists as primitive in order to destroy the oppressors. Essentially, they took back their own heritage and used that as their means of decolonizing. They found that identity as a means of decolonizing. 
Um, it's a strong, lucid, and militant book, and it is read to understand why Fanon says that for the colonized, having a gun is the only chance you still have of giving a meaning to your death. Which is a very, very profound statement. Yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> like holy shit. Yeah, he he's statement. not here to fuck around. Which why why you know with his experience, why would he fuck around? Yeah. It signifies the fall of imperialism and demonstrates how people struggle to decolonize their mind in order to avoid assimilation. He felt that that was very important, that a, a colonization wins when you subsume yourself to the colonized culture, their way of life, their language. And he talks a lot about language of black skin, white mass, that, that losing your own language and your own, your own form of communication and giving it over to the colonizer it takes away your power and your identity. Yeah, and, and, and I want to be, to be clear, you know, sometimes... You'll hear stuff, and if it's it's not if it's new to you, especially in the grounds of philosophy, especially when it's against anything you know cultural, it'll sound very abstract, yeah. you know, and and that very much like decolonize your mind very much does, but that's that's a concrete action. Yes, you know, it it can sound as distract as it is, but it's not something like you know, well. What is the source? What you know? What does that word really mean? No. And even that, I mean, those are good questions. Yeah. They may sound like you know, a freshman's first acid trip type, you know, shit. But they're really good questions that we need to ask more. Yeah. Uh, but this is not even in that vein. Even no. though it sounds the same kind of abstract, it's a concrete roadmap for decolonization. And it's going to get it, it's going to get very laid out as we go through mm. the actual text of Wretched of the Earth. It's going to really explain that mm. a lot better. Um, so a little bit on his, his legacy, on what, what carried forward. Um, Fanon has had an influence on anti-colonial and national liberation movements all over the world. Um, Wretched of <laughs> the Earth. say. Wretched of the Earth is a major influence work, uh, uh, major influential work for the revolutionary leaders such as, uh, oh, fuck, I'm going to fuck this up. Ali, Ali Shratani? Shratani? In Iran? Uh, I'm bad. Uh, Steve Bilko in South, South Africa, Malcolm X in the United States, and Che Guevara in Cuba. Ernesto Che Guevara in Cuba. Of these, only Guevara was primarily concerned with Fanon's theories on violence. Uh, the rest of them kind of took the decolonization um, and the consciousness part more, more critically than the actual violence part. But, mm, you know... You take what you get. Yeah. Um, with regard to American liberation, and this is an interesting thing because Fanon is widely considered one of the most influential um, theorists for American decolonization, um, especially among uh, the Black Panther the Black Panther Party. Um, so he is very, very widely read in the Black Power movement. Fanon's work was especially influential, especially Wretched of the Earth. It is quoted directly in the preface of Kwame Ture and Charles Hamilton's book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation, in 1967, shortly after uh, Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, why did they... Why did they write Kwame Ture the first time and then put Stokely Carmichael in the second I, time? I don't God know. God damn it. We could, I don't know. God damn it. His name is Kwame Ture. I mean, his name was Stokely, Stokely Carmichael, Carmichael and he was in the United States. And unfortunately, there's a lot of history that still goes by that. But we don't we don't go around calling him Cassius Clay. Yeah. You know? We yeah. call him Muhammad Ali because that's his name. That's his name. His Kwame Ture is his name. Yes. Uh, it's shortly after he left the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. In addition... Uh, Ture and Hamilton include much of Fanon's theory on colonialism in their work, beginning by framing the situation of former slaves in America as a colony situated inside of a nation. To put it another way, there is no American dilemma because black people in this country form a colony, and it is not in, their it is not in the interest of the colonial power to liberate them. Another example is the indictment of the black middle class, or what Fanon called the colonized intellectual, as the indoctrinated followers of the colonial power. 
Fanon states the native intellectual has clothed his aggressiveness in, the, in his barely veiled desire to assimilate himself to the colonial world. A third example is the idea that the native African-Americans should be constructing new social systems rather than participating in systems created by the settler population. Turi and Hamilton contend that black people should create rather than imitate, which I think is very widely agreed to be. Yes. I don't oh, know yeah. I mean, any, anyone socialist should create and not imitate. Yes, that exactly. was that was Khrushchev's problem. You exactly. Know? And, and obviously it's not going to be decolonial in any way to do that. No. You know? and, and I don't want to draw too many parallels because racism will have a very distinct... Um, uh, aspect to it that that we're going to get into with this work. A little bit. Uh, But, you know, you should also be able to draw parallels. We just talked about imperialism and the the coupon clipping class and how they were working class, but then their interest was in imperialism. You know, you'll kind of see that in in the intellectuals of the colonized nations. And, of course, you know, they're the fascist leaders and and things like that of the colonized nations, where their own self-interest now, they, they may be by design victims of the system, but they've risen above that, not by rising above that, but by clubbing everyone down and finding a very specialized help to reinforcing that system. Yeah. And you, you see that anywhere from intellectuals to, to stock investors to cops, you know, in our own society and in military uh, people, things like that. And of course, that's going to come from the colonized nations. We've seen that. And that's why things like listen to Venezuelans doesn't really make sense unless you're listening to Venezuelans in totality or Iranians in totality. Uh, because if you're just listening to like you designated leaders what good does that do you yeah so uh what did i know yeah so the black power group that Fanon had the most influence on was everyone's favorite the black panther party uh in 1970 bobby seal hey bobby welcome back yeah uh the chairman of the bpp published a collection of recorded observations made while he was incarcerated entitled seize the time the story of the black panther party and huey p newton This book, while not an academic text, is a primary source chronicling the history of the Black Panther Party through the eyes of one of its founders. While describing one of his first meetings with Huey P. Newton, Seal describes bringing him a copy of Wretched of the Earth. There are at least three other direct references to the book, all of them mentioning ways in which the book was influential and how it was included in the curriculum required of all new BPP members. This was fun when we were getting ready to start this book. It was right around, I don't, something on Twitter had published, um, Fred Hampton's, uh, List the the list of, of things you oh, had yeah. the, the reading list had to you, get yeah, to get into the back have to read and Richard yeah. of the Earth is absolutely like one of the top books that you oh, have 100%. to have read in order yeah. to to get membership in the party. Um, it, beyond just reading the text, Seal and the Black Panther Party included much of their work in the party's platform. Uh, the Panther Ten Point Plan contains six points, which either directly or indirectly referenced ideas in Fanon's work, including their contention that there must be an end to the robbery by the white man, and education that teaches us our true history and our role in present-day society. One of the most important elements adopted by the BPP was the need to build the humanity of the native. Fanon claimed that the realization by the native that he or she was human would mark the beginning of the push for freedom. The BPP embraced the idea through the work of their community schools and the free breakfast programs, which obviously, again, are the, the concrete things that the party was able to do to improve the, you know, improve the material life of, of mm. people in their community. But again, it also it showed them that they had... A right to those sorts of things. I think it was over a hundred different programs the Black Panther Party had. Oh, yeah. The most prominent one that people remember was the free breakfast, but there was, you know, reading education. Oh, yeah. Just just community schools, just just alternative schools where you could have, you know, you could could get education Mm -hmm. and not in the colonial sense. Yeah. And also really important on the humanity is, is kind of a reminder of why things like 
Indigenous people as sports mascots is yeah not okay super you know, bad super bad and you know you could hear that go super bad and think oh that's you know well I know it's bad but I don't really get why well because it's it's dehumanizing it puts them as a character and as as this primitive and so it takes some of the most honorable parts like the the warrior and defense aspects it mullies all of these nations into one makes yep. one broad caricature and makes it into some like savage primitive because it's shirtless and, and instead of understanding that these are nations where you know when when Britain got into democracy and then reflected that back in the United States and oh we're the great democracy of the West well, it's because the Aztecs and the Iroquois Confederation were democratic and they went oh yeah and then they dug back in their own history and went oh the Greeks did this too we should do that you know and and then started mimicking it and you know the, the sanitation and, and cleanliness I can't think of the, the word for washing yourself what am I thinking of bathing uh, no, no no I know not bathing ablutions like, I don't know what are you talking about here general general like hygiene hygiene that's the <laughs> damn word shit. hygiene the, the hygiene standards <laughs> shut up the hygiene standards uh, that we have today, you know, oh. are largely influenced by them. Europeans were not strong in hygiene. I mean, what? The people on. that brought us the plague weren't yeah, very straight, hygienic? Yeah, right. You <laughs> don't say. You know, but they had complex cities. They had incredible, you know, astronomy. And people don't respect any of that, the no. mathematics, because there's two problems. One, of course, the racist caricatures. And two, they, they did a lot of oral history. They didn't do, really do written history. You know, yeah. there's a there's an expression in indigenous cultures that when an elder dies, a library is burned. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, 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 these are not... Um, these are not histories that are gone or inaccurate. We're so used to word of mouth being inaccurate. Yeah. These are not inaccurate because even written history can be played up with biases oh my and things God. like that. Yeah. But the fact that they're oral histories, they, they haven't been respected. And then, Well, our, also, we genocided a whole lot of the... Sure. I mean, you burned the Library of Alexandria. That's one thing. Yeah, we also you know, genocided a library in this country pretty quickly. Yeah, and then you go back and, and you have like the archaeologists dig this up and go, oh, well, this was true about indigenous nations 500 years ago. They're, their oral history already said that. Yeah. Like, yeah. you, you know, so that's, it's very, very important to understand the humanity, not just because they, of course they are people. Yes. Um, you know, and, and we should understand everyone's humanity, uh, but, but most important because it's, it's been robbed away and we need to be not just realize that they're human, but we need to be completely re-educated on that humanity and what the humanity of those cultures and the people within those cultures mean. Yes. And that's where, you know, you get these these broad, of course, we talked about the terms like freedom and stuff that, that these enlightenment movements don't really give a shit about, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, and so when they say freedom religion, they just like, you know, mean that we don't want the specific Christian oppressors, you know, we had, we want to be these Christian and atheist oppressors of everyone else. But it's why that, that you know, accidentally, just like freedom and equality are, are words that happen to be right. The Enlightenment movement is just a big pile of bullshit. You know, uh, freedom of religion is words that happen to be right because religion is so closely tied to culture. And so I don't care about freedom of Christianity. Fuck Christianity's had its day. Fuck it. And I, this is a guy that's grown up Catholic. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> fuck the Catholic Church. It's had its day. Yeah. But, you know, even... Even to some extent, the the colonized you know ties that culture has done to Catholicism when you get it from like Latinx people, and you know it's very very sad to see like the rosaries that have been taken away from people at the border. But especially these indigenous cultures and their faith—that's a huge part of culture. Yeah, you know, and so we need to recognize the humanity of these cultures. And then that's again, and in Fanon's I you know in Fanon's way of seeing it, that's the first step mm-hmm. to connecting you to. It's it's why I get very. With all these, it happens again. Anarchists, I love you. Um, whenever the 
whenever we talk about decolonizing and, and this is settled, this is this is colonized land, give this land back to the people. And they go, oh, well, that's just an ethno state. That's just a different kind of ethno state. Yeah. No! A group of people recognizing that they have a right to a culture that's been taken from them and ripped away violently from them, wanting to reestablish that culture and have a place to have it peacefully in their own terms, is not fucking ethno states. God damn it! On top of that, I mean, think of what socialism, people get this wrong so much. Socialism is not a redistribution of wealth. No. It's just not. No. It's it's your relationship to the means of production. And land, raw materials, is a huge means of production. Yes. And so giving that back to the people that it's been robbed no. from, just as private property robs the value of your work from a worker, the land being robbed from the indigenous people that it belongs to, giving that back to them and allowing them to have their own understandings where it's not a property, a resource to them, yes. but it's something they belong to. It's, you know, I mean, there's a lot of cultures. It's not just indigenous cultures here, although we should be very aware of that. Hyper. It, it, of course, you know, varies from indigenous culture to indigenous culture here, but largely it's the same. But all over the world, there's a lot of cultures where the land is it, like an elder relative. Yes. It, it's a provider. Yeah. It's not, you know, a, it's, it's it's not a resource to be extracted. No, it's something you love and you live in unison with. And, you know, that's not only to give it back to them to allow them to restore that relationship, uh, but also their proximity to that means of production that was robbed away from them. You know, I mean, just like we should get the value of our work, they should have the value of their own land. Yes. You know, and so, yeah, no, that's not an ethno state. That's, that's, it's just like at the end of Capital, when Marx said that you negate the negation, okay? You negate the negation. You give back the The land. land. (sighs) Back to Fanon. Yes. <laughs> uh, Bolivian Indianist, Indianist Fausto Rinainga. Yeah, I'm going to get that one right. Somewhere in the wall. Come on! I think those were words. <laughs> yeah. Also had Fanon in, some Fanon influence, and he mentions the wretched of the earth in his magnum opus, La Revolution India, advocating for decolonization of native South Americans from European influence. In 2015, Raul Zabishi argued that Fanon had become a key figure for the Latin American left. Which is, again, that's that's common. Yeah. And you can see that. You can see exactly why reading this book. Sure. Um, Fanon's influence extended to the liberation movements of the Palestinians, the Tamils, African-Americans, and others. His work was a key influence on the Black Panther Party we've already established, particularly his ideas concerning nationalism, violence, and the lumpen proletariat. More recently, radical South African poor people movements, such as the Abhali Basimanjano... Oh, my God... People who live in shacks in Zulu is what it translates to. That's good. I'm getting, oh man, I am just getting it through the ringer today. Have been influenced by Fanon's work. Uh, And you're pronouncing everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really, I've taken one for the, yeah. His work was a key influence on Brazilian educationalist Paulo Freire as well. Paulo Freire, writer of a work that I definitely, definitely, definitely want to dig into. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Freire uh, was the writer of uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Oh, yeah. Um, So, uh, Freire borrowed heavily from Fanon, very influenced by Fanon. Um, He also profoundly impacted uh, contemporary African literature. His work serves as an important theoretical overview for writers, including uh, a whole, just almost everything coming out of of the African uh, literature movement since his death has been sort of keyed to his writings. He kind of started a a movement there. Um, Nwigi goes so far as in, in to argue in decolonizing the mind, which was written in '92. It is impossible to understand what informs African writing without reading *Wretched of the Earth*. 
The Caribbean Philosophical Association offers the Franz Fanon Prize for works that furthers the decolonization and liberation of mankind. So somebody, somebody, listener, go win that prize. Let's let's forward the decolonization <laughs> and liberation of mankind, please. Um, interestingly enough, uh, his writing on black sexuality and black skin, white mass has been garnered critical attention by a number of academics and queer theory scholars. Um, interrogating Fanon's perspective on the nature of black homosexuality and masculinity. Queer theory academics have offered a variety of critical responses to Fanon's words, balancing his position within post-colonial studies with his influence on the formation of contemporary black queer theory. This is, I thought, just interesting because I feel like this is one of the first times, especially anyone that we've read, has mm-hmm. has even touched into into that that sphere, into queer well, theory at all. And that's important because yes. you think about it, we, I mean, Fanon is focused on decolonization and gender binary, heterosexuality, heteronormity, yeah. nuclear family. These are all colonial constructs. Yes. So, of course, you have to combat those directly for decolonization. And that does not mean, now that's the other thing is, again, since we have not fully read Black Skin, White Mask, mm. I am not going to, com- if there is someone who has, if there is something that Fanon got wrong in there critically that we need to cover, and you know it, tell me so that we can correct it. Because, uh, again, we read these people when they're right, when they're wrong, we need to acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, but that was an, I thought that was an interesting little fact that, that, that this is the first time that we've kind of delved into into that very, very, very powerful um, side of, of humanity that really didn't get touched on in the classic Marxist works. Um, I, I still think the, the only... <laughs> one of, I think, and I think it was on the Proles episode with on Stalin, I think the uh, one of the agreed upon three things that Stalin yeah. got wrong, like one of the number one with a bullet was the criminalization of homosexuality. Like that was right. an acknowledged thing that we fucked up. So, right. So. And I, obviously, you know, I mean, you can't great man theory and say like Stalin single handedly no, just hated gay people. No. You know? Yeah. I mean, what happened there was there was a lot of, uh, you know, homophobia. And when the czarist regime fell and it became the USSR and I can't remember the name of it until 1921 uh, between 1921 oh the uh, yeah the not the the yeah no yeah, okay. yeah we all know the we worker know. stayed there yeah <laughs> Proto-USSR. Yeah. Um, you know, in that time, the, the law was just never established. Yeah. And, of course, it kind of went on. It wasn't wasn't a big deal. They kind of let it go, uh, which was good. I mean, things were progressing well. But then the fear of World War II, a lot of – you get reactionary. Yeah. You get, you get reactionary views and reaction when people are pressed. Yeah. And uh, – those reaction reviews started coming out, and so they started worrying a lot about reproduction in the war. And what that kind of meant was an excuse to bring back a lot of this homophobia. Yeah. And so a country where, you know, abortion was legal in 1920, where homosexuality was not illegal in 1917, the only place it was explicitly legalized before, I think, the 60s or 70s uh, was the Ottoman Empire, and let's, which was great at the Turks, but let's not act like the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, but let's not put the Turks on a platform here. Uh, you know, but then, you know, of course, Yugoslavia and Cuba uh, legalized it explicitly. But um, but before that, you know, it was just kind of not illegal. And then all of a sudden they were worried about population control and losing people to World War Two. And so the reaction was very, you know, anti-abortion and homophobic. And that was one of the, the bad things the USSR did. Obviously, the what they did for humanity was incredible. That doesn't mean they were perfect, and that doesn't exactly. mean that that's an excuse or that those things no. are okay. And that's not it. Yeah, and it's it, it is an again we can object. And it's, I think yeah, it, it's objectively like not it, okay. Like, it goes back to it goes back to the we're not idealizing. This is not a this is not a, a cult of personality. They were they were people. They made mistakes. Yeah, criminalizing homosexuality was a mistake. 
black and white. There yeah. was no justification for it. Yeah, and when you say under Stalin, I mean, obviously, that's Stalin had more influence than anyone. Just like when Khrushchev in, went in, as a leader, you have a little more influence, and you can turn people to somewhat. But we're just talking about the actual mass of people because yeah. the USSR was a very democratic, socialist yes. nation. But I was just going to say... Being the, uh, I, I guess, tanky podcast number two behind Proles, um, I, I feel like we just had to acknowledge every once in a while that Stalin was capable of faults. Um, yeah. As I look up at our nice picture of Stalin. Hi, yeah. Joe. Hey. Hi, Papa. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's there's that as well. So Good Uncle Joe. Good Uncle Joe. Um, not not the creepy Uncle Joe that, no, that Biden no. has turned yes. into. No. Um, so that gets us through... The, the history of Fanon as a person and, and kind of the prelude into, uh, you know, the work from that point. The last part that I do that we are going to dive into um, is a little bit of what the Algerian uh, independence movement was, because this was the movement that. 1,000% influenced what Fanon was writing about. When he was, the same way that uh, uh, state and revolution is a, or imperialism is a direct re- response to World War One. Mm-hmm. Wretched of the Earth is an absolute response to what Fanon was seeing during the Algerian Revolution. Um, the Algerian Revolution was um, fascinating unto itself, and I'm not going to do it justice here, but just to kind of broad stroke it, um, this was happening at the same time. So again, post-World War II, um, we're starting to see a lot of decolonization. People are needing to give up their colonies. France was one of those fun ones that decided, no, we're not. Um, and we're <laughs> going to hold on to two very large ones. And the two biggest colonies um, that France maintained possession of after the war was French Indochina, which again can, constitutes Vietnam, uh, parts of Cambodia, I think parts of Laos are, yeah, are in there as Laos well. That whole that, of that chunk of, of, of Southeastern Asia uh, was considered French Indochina, and they were hold on to that. And even more important to them was Algeria, was, was French Algeria is what it was called. Um, and they had held French Algeria since the 1800s, like 1836. Um, they entered Algeria 1857, I think, is when they officially took it on as a, a, a colony, very much in the same way that Haiti was a part of the empire. Um, um, they, were, they all reported back to the metropole, um, but they were, they were subjects of there. And so at that time, you know, it was native, when they took over, it was all inhabited by native Algerians. And then there was this influx over the next hundred years or so of European settlers. Um, straight up colonists. They they were mostly there was a heavy heavy dose of Christian missionaries and uh, and and there was a smattering a, a not not insignificant portion of Jewish immigrants as well um, that kind of came in and made up. I think at the height of it at the when the when the emigration took place after the war it was like made up like thirteen percent of the population was made up of non native Algerians, mm-hmm. um, and so. When they originally took Algeria, it was a violent, violent conquest. I mean, it was scorched earth. They they basically completely burned it to the ground and then took back over. Uh, there was something between there were three million Algerians living there uh, during the invasion. Between five hundred thousand and one million were killed. Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The French during that time period lost three thousand people. During that invasion, this was an absolute. This was a. That's a worse super, than the Korean War. This was a superpower going into a completely unwitting, unwilling, play, and just destroying, just just wrecking. I mean, that's 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 the Korean War, except in Africa. Yeah, and the percentages are. I guess Korean War, you could say twenty percent to thirty-three, but it's usually more expected twenty yeah. to twenty-five percent. This sounds like it's closer to yeah. a third. And this is a French military colony because what is Algeria very close to? 
Egypt. Napoleon, Egypt, the French, they have a, they have a mild uh, uh, back and forth. So France, yeah, a bit. France wanted that, but wanted a military. They wanted a military buffer state in between them, and that's what Algeria became for them. Um, uh, during in 1865, they uh, they made a, an allowment because obviously the population of Algeria was majority, if almost entirely Muslim. Um, they allowed in 1865 Muslims to apply for full citizenship. Um, which almost none of them took because it would mean renouncing the right to uh, to Sharia law if they chose to if they wanted to, to operate under that you would have to forfeit that in order to gain French citizenship so most people just didn't it was considered apostasy to, to even consider it so they didn't and the French used that as an excuse to go oh well they're not really people they're not citizens they're the savages yada yada all that fun mm. stuff um so then you post, then you, you go through a hundred years of a colonized group. We all know how that goes. It's fun and exciting, resource extraction, all of that. There are heavy, heavy oil uh, resources in the Sahara, uh, which a the, bit. Which, Just the a fr- bit. which the French were more than happy to to oh sure to use up as they were going. Yeah. Um, but Algeria, as you said, it was unique to France because unlike every one of their other seized possessions that they got during the 19th century, only Algeria was a legally classified internal part of France. It was considered France. Not a not a not a island off of there. France, like Puerto Rico, almost like where it, it is yeah. part of the country. It is mainland France, as far as they're concerned. Um, obviously, during times like this, uh, post World War II, they're seeing a there's an outbreak of of autonomy and self rule. Why, weirdly enough, back to a thing that has been edited out, and I'm now bringing it back up to get edited out again. One of the big uh, kickoff points for Algerian revolution was Woodrow Wilson's 1918 proclamation of the 14 points. Uh, the fifth point reading, a free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial ad- adjustment of colonial claims based on a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the population concerned must have equal weight with the equitable claims of the government whose title is to be determined. So a lot of Algerian intellectuals at the time looked at that and said, that means we should be able to self-rule. We should have autonomy. That's literally what you're saying. Why don't yeah. we get that? Um, and so that was kind of the seed, and everything kind of started rolling from there. Uh, the French Communist Party was picking up steam at that point. At that point, um, they they became a very strong force at the apex of the revolution, um, and the French Communist Party was very much in the interest of yes, let Algeria self-determine. That's that's absolutely their right. Um, and then you get into these. Now now we have. Subgroups. Yeah. We have the now. Of course, we, we do know the French Communist Party has its its issues with decolonialism. Oh my God! Yes, we come can, on now. We can look a little bit at Vietnam. Oh, I was about to say they weren't great, but by the time that this had happened, this was after French. By the time the revolution actually kicked off, um, it was post the Indochina split, and I everyone had kind of seen how that had gone and didn't like that very much, and so they were very much there was a lot of international pressure on France to allow Algeria to to self determine. Um, there was the, the main subgroup within Algeria, uh, were called Pierre Noir. They were Algerians of European origin. So basically everyone that immigrated during that hundred year interlude, um, like kind of like Criollo of Algeria. Exactly. Exactly. Like Criollo of Germany. And, uh, more importantly, kind of like, um, I imagine all of the people in Hong Kong right now waving Union Jacks. Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. Those people, those guys. I mean, I'm sure there's some people that, that were of Chinese descent that were just made super wealthy. And we'll, we'll talk about that group of people there in Hong Kong, but most, the majority of people in Hong Kong, uh, especially the ones that are of like, say Han descent, Mm -hmm. uh, are not, not Union Jack waving right now. They're, (laughs) 
No, no, no. They're not a part of this. So by 1954 is when things really got kicked off. That's when the National Liberation Front was founded. Again, that's the party that Fanon mm-hmm. had been a part of and had written for and had supported. Um, and this is right after um, the the French had lost Indochina, and they were hell-bent on not losing another colonial war. More importantly, um, not losing their oldest major colony that they considered an integral part of the... It would be like the United States losing Texas to Mexico. It's that level of committed to the... to the. Yeah. It, was, it was considered part of the country. The concept of it being its own country was not even a thing. You would not consider it. Um, and so, obviously... That's actually a weirdly good analogy because of the oil. I know! I, I thought about <laughs> I just thought about it as I was like, oh, this works. This is fun. Um... <laughs> So then you get what you almost always get in these fights. It is a, it is, the FLN is a wildly understaffed, I think it was like 3,000 people to start with at the time, going up against France, who, again, even post-World War II France, superpower status in terms of their military. They could still take on anything. You were not going to just beat them militarily. So the FLN took a lot of different routes to attempting to to find a way to make it. They, they used the tried and true methods that you found in, in Vietnam of guerrilla warfare. Um, they, te- they they cited Mao's tactics heavily in in how to how to gain independence. They were, uh, but they also heavily leaned on what's called internationalism, um, which was the concept of look, we're not going to be able to do this on our own. We need the pressure of the uh, of the international community to to really force France into moving because we're not going to be able to do it militarily. We can just kind of drag this out on them. Which is where everything broke down into a lot of torture, a lot of a lot of eh, back and forth. Everyone was was not being uh, not 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 playing by the norm, formal norm, lineup and shooting each other rules. Uh, and the French got really bad. There was this schism within the French um, uh, forces, where basically you had the ultra right French who were hell-bent on not losing French Algeria. They did not care. This was after after it had gotten to the point where it was obviously untenable to keep Algeria. They were going to have to let themselves determine. Uh, b- at this time, uh, storming back after 23 years of not being in power in 1950, Charles de Gaulle was brought back in as the leader of France specifically because of this crisis, because they're like, we need, oh God, we need to solve this. Get, get De Gaulle back. Go get De Gaulle. Jesus Christ. So they bring De Gaulle back and the military loses their shit because De Gaulle essentially says, look, we're going to put down the insurrection. We're going to put down the fighting. Um, and then we're going to let the Algerians determine for themselves. And the military is like, fuck, no, you're not. We're going to win this. We're going to kill all of them. If we have to, we're going to win this goddamn fight. Um, and so you had that fun, kind of like MacArthur. Yeah. And, and it was exactly the analogy of MacArthur over in Korea, where even though the, the, the government had decided this is not yeah, worth going over, to, yeah. military people don't think like that. No. And they're, they're not, they're, it's not going to work. So oh my God. at the same time, you have this giant gaggle of vigilantes. Uh huh. Uh huh. At the same time, um, France was in a little bit of a tiff with, uh, Egyptian president, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, who you may have remembered from the Suez Crisis. Yeah. So now you have the Algerians aligning with Egypt to pressure, because they wanted the United States to pressure France to give it up so that you don't have this whole thing. It was, oh my God, everything was everything was kicking off. It is a fascinating, um, fascinating conflict to, to look at because it, it really, really was, I, I mean... This is clearly a conflict. I don't know enough it about was, it. I, I don't think anyone does. And I'm not doing it justice, but I'm just trying to kind of give you the back and forth of where, again, you have a wholly colonized people. Uh, it was at this point 
1957 that existentialist writer, philosopher, and playwright and guy that Nathan liked for a long time and now is mad at, Albert Camus, shows up. He was a native of Algiers, which was a major city within Algeria, um, and he tried unsuccessfully to persuade both sides to leave civilians alone um, because this was total war for both sides. Both sides yeah. basically were pot committed to we're, we're getting this one way or another, and Camus was an idealist who basically said, no, we will do this with theory and priests and logic and will Jimmy Carter this motherfucker to go. Let's go, boys. And it, it didn't work. So he wrote a lot. Uh, he wrote for a paper called Combat, which was a uh, French resistance paper during the war. But he wrote a whole bunch of editorials um, about the use of torture and how it's like, oh, you, this is unjust and you shouldn't win your independence this way. And basically telling a colonized people, again, as a fr- because French Noam Chomsky in it. Yes. And it's very interesting because Fanon is, Fanon and uh, Camus, I see as kind of, anti- you know, counter people here. Camus was French Algerian, born in Algiers. He considered himself French. Yeah. Fanon was in Algeria, was, was French born in Martinique. He did not consider himself French. He considered himself on the side of the colonized people. And that's what it boiled down to. The FLN uh, outrightly called Camus a fool, um, said he was an idealist, said he was a traitor. Um, But uh, when he won the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, he said when faced with a radical choice, he would eventually support his community, which uh, made him lose a lot of status among left-wing intellectuals. And this is where it gets citations needed. When he died in 1960, uh, he died in a car crash in, the, in 1960. Uh, yeah. The official, it was a ordinary car wreck. There is no conspiracy, conspiracy about it. Um, there are not, Camus' wa- widow claimed that though it was discreet, he was an ardent supporter of French Algeria for the later part of his life. So she assumed that the FLN had him killed. Basically, he he wanted the French to win. He wanted mm. that to remain a French colony. He thought that was the best thing for everybody, um, which is why he's a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> um, God damn it, Camus, you bad, bad. Uh, now, there's one last part. Again, hidden run tax we've gone over. And we really, the, the end of this comes with... Uh, uh, the FLN winning, uh, De Gaulle basically it, it rega- knew he couldn't win, knew he wasn't going to get there, gave them, tried to negotiate with a with a lesser party, not the FLN, like a third, my, less way less radical version of the Algerian sure. independence. Yeah, absolutely. Um, they always tried to. I mean, that's their last second. Like, exactly. Scramble. And then they said, okay, well, we'll give you most of Algeria. We just want to keep the Sahara. <laughs> You know, the one with the oil. Yeah. And uh, FLM said, get fucked, walked away from the table. And then De Gaulle's like, okay, fine, 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 fine. You can have it all. You can have it all. You can have it all. Um, <laughs> we just we just want this Rojava place up here. Uh-huh. And yeah, yeah. You can have the rest uh-huh. of the Uh-huh. Oh, the parallels, it's it's bad. Yeah. Um, this is also fun because uh, the, there were some new tactics that the French used for the first time in this war, mm-hmm. such as helicopters for ground attacks, something that was oh. popularized during Vietnam, and uh, the use of napalm. Also popularized during Vietnam. Yay, France! Good job, boys. Yeah. Um. So again, as this is all going down, you have uh, you have one last kind of ditch resistance movement, which is it was it was called the Week of the Barricades, mm-hmm. where basically you now have this splinter group. So De Gaulle has given up and is going to concede it. You have essentially a right wing terrorist group within French Algeria called the I think it's the OSA was their name. It was yes. Oh. Oh, no, OAS. 
the Organization Armée Secrète, the Secret Army Organization, because right-wing people are incapable of coming up with cool names. So this is this is the the Blackwater, except they weren't hired on; they formed organically. Uh huh. This or is the, a, or the people left on the uh, Pacific Islands. Yeah, it is the French. It is the 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 military leaders who felt that De Gaulle hung them out to dry and let them lose when they could have burned every one of those damn Muslims to the ground. Um, and it's uh, uh, French Algerians that live in, in Algeria that think, this is our country, damn it. We live here. We've been here for a hundred years. God damn that you've been here for a million years. This is ours now. Yeah. Um, the only reason I really bring that up is because during when they rounded everyone up and, uh, and imprisoned everyone, there was one person that got rounded up and imprisoned. And, oh, God, where was it? Oh, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it. One of the student leaders of this, because it was a heavily, it was a student, like, right-wing libertarian party groups. Yeah. Um, and one of the people that got caught up there, it, no, not that one, there it is. Uh, spring of 1962, OAS turned to bank robbery to finance its war. So they were basically getting beat so bad that they were robbing their own banks to finance themselves. Um only 80 deputies vote of their of their membership voted against the Evian Accords or what ended the war. Um, but one of the people that got rounded up and arrested was a little person named Jean-Marie Le Pen. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah, baby. Um, and Le Pen was writing vociferous Breitbart era articles against oh, all of sure, this bullshit. Yeah. He was, oh, and uh, one of the uh, Cairns, who was one of the, the historians at the time, said that De- Le Pen's writings against de Gaulle were only the traditional verbal excesses of third-rate firebrands without a substantial following and without a constructive idea. <laughs> and I just love, I was I was just reading this whole thing and I'm like, people have never, wait a minute, god damn it, isn't that the French Nazi? What the fuck? I love, I love the parallels to this because people can see how this, like, you know, the, the white national subversive like anti-establishment stuff of it Mm -hmm. you can see you know in like Le Pen at the time he's obviously fighting for France it's the same white supremacy it's just that they don't they they see it as red tape giving up is just you know and they're abandoning us they just they're so fervently in the the court of serving power for the little advantage that they get that Power gripping down and mass murdering is not enough. And that's where you get people like this week, right? We, we just had two two white supremacist mass shootings in 24 hours. Yep. And it's the same thing, right? You have people rounded up in concentration camps. And then you have these subversive people that are like, oh, no, they're not killing the brown people fast enough. And it, there's naked stuff. Like you see people get on social media or get on the news and say, hey, you want to shoot someone? Join join the oh army. Oh my god. And it's like, okay, first off, first <laughs> off, you're not you're just stating straight up that like you have this ledger of these are the people that are supposed to die. Stop killing people off the ledger. Get in the ledger and murder the brown people. Just get in the ledger. You just have to be in the ledger. I you know, it, it just it tells you explicitly they're telling themselves what that is. But on top of that, let's imagine a world where the army and the cops, I don't know why we're exercising this, but just for the sake of argument. Why? Yeah, why, why make that? <laughs> that they're not white supremacists and that it's not what promoted this violence. Let's just pretend that it's the good system they want it to be. You're poisoning that good system by shoving those people in there and then giving them unfettered access to murder. And, and on top of all that, let's give them that again. 
it's already infiltrated. There's been yeah. I don't know how many articles yeah. that take it's been good and it's infiltrated by Nazis for granted. Like, no, it's for Nazis. It's, it's the I, I think you were in it a little bit. I had no I couldn't wait into Twitter today. Brett, you I was watching no. you do it, and Brett was I don't Oh, I, like Brett needs, think, to, Brett needs a stiff drink after today. Yeah, I don't that, think social media is the best no. battleground for this stuff, and I don't think social media is the world. But certainly, news events are going to hit social media and see expression, and and social media from big power figures. When it doesn't matter if it's social media or a statement on the news, and and some of this I'm reacting to is statements on the news and stuff like that, um, or if it's just you know punditry or an article someone writes platforming major voices. When they say stuff, that's important. And so sometimes it's, of course, when they say stuff, it's going to be a subject on social media. So today I'm talking about something that became a subject on social media, but it's because it's a real-life platform of something terrible. And people have to understand, those are people wearing on their sleeves. They're telling you, look, this is where you sign up to murder the brown people. We're going to pay you to do this. Don't do it unpaid because then we're going to have to look bad and do all this news and write articles. We're supposed to hide that and then come home and clap for how you're a hero and missed your family for 18 months and pay you a bunch of money. Don't do it for free and go to jail. You know, and it's like, fuck, you're telling them this. Yeah, it's... Oh, my God. Yeah, and before either of us has an aneurysm, the last, the last part, of and it, so again, Algeria did gain their independence, full independence. They were able to to self determine, um, and and set up government. Um, not that that went as smoothly as it should have, no, but you know, no, it that's, is, that's a hard self, thing to self do. Self determination is not, yeah, is not incredibly. It's not simple. an easy road. No. You're you're facing subversion from all of the forces that want their power back or want more power all the time, mm-hmm. and you're always kind of experimenting with socialism and decolonization to get it right. It's not. It's not a perfect science. But this was, again, in the early 60s that this happened. Mm-hmm. So in, in late 1958-59, uh, the French army had actually pushed in and were as close. They almost had it. They had basically gotten uh, within an inch of completely destroying the Algerian resistance. They all they had them on the ropes and had almost pushed them out. Um, and it was at this point that a, a, a nice gentleman named uh, Colonel Birgard whose elite paratrooper unit fought at Dien Bien Phu, which, ugh, great credentials there, <laughs> good job, in 54, said this. And I think this is just such a fucked up insight into how these people think. We are not making war for ourselves, not making a col- co- colonialist war. Begard wears no shirt, I show no open uniform, as do my officers. We are fighting right here, right now, for them, for the evolution to see the evolution of these people and that this war is for them. We are defending their freedom as we are, in my opinion, defending the West's freedom. We are here as ambassadors, crusaders, who are hanging on in order to still be able to talk and to be able to speak for. Stop, it hurts. Yep. Yep. And that's why colonialism is so, the psychology of it is so important and that's why we're reading Fanon guys this is exactly this is exactly this this it's it white saviorism is its own thing but you can't just say white saviorism is bad and then point your finger you you have to understand the material root of these things if you're ever going to battle them 
that underscores exactly why we have to debunk the lies about current leaders like, oh, Maduro's murdering a million people and Stalin murdered 20 million people and 100 million people killed by socialism 100 years and all this bullshit. Existing past socialist states, non-socialist states that are official U.S. enemies, the the savage, you know, da, 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 tropes and racist tropes. This is why we have to debunk all of this stuff, why we have to show people and humanize these cultures, why we have to end this East versus West bullshit. And there's a great citations needed on the Western civilization, white supremacist oh, yeah, lie that was very recent. Yeah, uh, yeah, I definitely recommend taking a listen to that one. Um, but, I mean, you have to push back on this stuff. And this is exactly why, because to them, those mindsets seem normal and rational. And at some point you push back and they'll be they'll push they'll pull forward with some cognitive dissonance. But they don't get to the point of the cognitive dissidence until they've been led to believe that stuff in the first place. And there's a level that they do it for their own interest. And there's a level that it becomes their interest because they've they've been gullibly led there. And then there's a level of people that have just been gullibly led there and don't want to be led astray and don't want to be told that everything they've thought is wrong. And you have to get at the core of how they've been led that way in the first place to undo it. You know, this is kind of one of those things where we talk about. I have I have no sympathy for 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 soldiers. You know, fuck the troops, right? Don't don't sit there and go, oh well, they've they've turned. They can be our great voice and stuff. But just like Mao and on contradiction and on practice, right? You have to understand the other side. Yeah. You have to know what psychologically makes these people think they're going to save people. What makes these people think? I am going overseas to defend, you know, I mean, not the ones that are going out there and flying an SS flag, yeah. but the ones that really think they're heroes. Yeah. You know, you, you do have to understand that, not to have an understanding empathy for them. Fuck them. They, they did it. The actions, it was right in front of their face. Fuck them. And, and even if they're wrong, they would take, if they, if they genuinely turn, they would hear fuck them and go, yeah, good. Push that yeah. so that no one makes my mistake. Yeah. Otherwise, they haven't really turned. So yeah. you have this paradigm where there was no, there's no land of empathy because when you, the, the people that deserve the empathy don't want you to have that empathy because then it would push other people down the same path. And most people don't deserve you know that empathy even when they've been there. But you have to understand what led them there so that you can stave it off, so that you can stop it. And clearly, when you hear those words, you can hear the colonial mindset and, and how it sends people that way. And obviously, you have to look at the material conditions that create that mindset. It's a base and a superstructure. So that, <laughs> that guys, Woo! is the introduction to the introduction chapter of uh, Wretched of the Earth. We're uh, a read, read theory podcast, and we haven't even read any We haven't read a page of the, yeah. Every every Ooh, book, damn. every book we do this, every, uh, well, I don't think we did well, one for Capital. Not a separate episode, though. We, like, kind of do the context with the intro. But this one has such a yeah. big preface and so much context that we pretty well have to split yeah, it Yeah, we, it, it needs, it, it stands on its own. It needs it. Yeah, um, and we did a mini intro in Capital. We just jumped into chapter one. No, you, well, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We we were, yeah, we, we were didn't. flying by the seat of our damn pants, um, and and I think State Revolution is the one we lumped it in. I think we did intro. I think we did uh, World War One. Yeah, because that's the last one for imperialism. I was like, I'll just sum up World War One in a couple minutes. It'll be easy. Yeah, and duh. then I hated myself for a couple of weeks because <laughs> <laughs> I make I make dumb decisions. But this was our intro, intro, intro to the intro to the intro. So next week you will be hearing from uh, another person that's not Fanon. <laughs> Um, but it is a uh, it is a very stirring and very I think uh, relevant intro from uh, from Mr. Jean Paul Sartre. Yes. So until then, bye. bye.